Hey, I'm Zach, and one day I'm going to make movies, but right now I'm young, dumb, and not nearly as good-looking as my co-hosts. So with the help of... I'm Matthew. I'm Rodrigo. I'm Steven. I'm going to learn what makes a movie great by watching all the classics I've skipped over. So pop the corn and turn your cell phone to silent, because it's time for a new episode of Zach on Film. Gather around the giant monolith, kids. Grab your haul unit and strap on your Velcro shoes, because it's time to talk 2001 A Space Odyssey this week. On Zach on film. Hey, Zach. Hey, Steven. So uh, you had the joy of watching 2001 A Space Odyssey while not under the influence of any drugs, correct? Uh, yes. I did have the joy of watching this movie. There were no drugs involved. Not I, even, I might have taken some Dayquil. N- not even any Mangria or Ruinum or anything like that? Um, No. You know what? I was playing it pretty straight watching. Uh, and then I felt like... I think I might have taken something towards the end, but then I realized that was just the movie. So give us a breakdown of what you know about 2001 A Space Odyssey. Stanley Kubrick. Yep, Stanley Kubrick. Uh, mean, many people may not know this. In fact, I didn't know this until recently, for whatever reason, just didn't pay attention. I always thought the movie was an adaptation of the book. Mm. Movie and the book were both written at the same time yeah. by yeah. Arthur C. Clarke right. and uh, Kubrick, and the movie came out first with the book a couple months later. Look at that. And it was originally supposed to be credited the movie with Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke, and the book was supposed to be credited Arthur C. Clarke with Stanley yeah. Kubrick, but the book only came out with uh, Clarke's name on it. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, uh, yeah so uh, we'll just kind of run down the story, if you want to call it that, of 2001 really quick. Uh, we open up at the beginning of Man as uh, primal apes, and they're all kind of like dancing around on rocks. And trying to live and survive and stuff, and their groups are doing what they do and like fighting each other and yelling and stuff. And uh, one group is getting beat back. And then uh, one morning, when they're seemingly probably ready to die of starvation and stuff, no water, this giant black slab appears out of nowhere. And they kind of dance around it, don't know what to do, uh, touch it, and something happens inside their little minds. And uh, one of them starts learning, uh, learns how to use a bone as a tool, kind of uses it as a club. Well, yeah, not just a tool, a weapon. Oh, yeah, a weapon. Right. Yeah. Uh, beats beats one of the other group of apes down, down, and they're dead, and they like rule. And uh, flings a bone up in the air, and what does it fade into? A spaceship, the natural fade. Uh, so then we have a story of spaceships. And humans uh, in this new technological age, million years from uh, where we were at the beginning of this film. Four. Four million years. Look at that. Uh, Now humans are exploring space. And what do we find on the moon? A black giant monolith thing. Uh, We gather around that. We touch it. It hurts our ears. We see that it sends a signal to uh, Jupiter. So 18 months later, some people aboard a ship with a computer, and they set off for Jupiter. Jupiter. I said that weird. Uh, things happen on the ship. Uh, essentially, the computer kills everyone, except one person, who then ends, ends up in a room, watches himself grow old, turns into a baby, and the movie is over. 
Well, good, good synopsis. Yeah. yeah. Overall, good translation of the movie. But what, is it, but what does it all mean? Oh, so first of all, a couple a of things. So a couple of things to notice in the okay. uh, Dawn, of, Dawn of Man segment, yes. segment. The movie's broken up into three se- segments. The uh, Dawn of Man, um, the uh, Moon know. Mission, yeah. and then to Jupiter and the, inf- and the Infinite yeah. is the third part. Um, in the first part, the apes that we meet or the um, – the primitive man that we meet mm-hmm. are herbivores. Uh, you know, they're eating plants a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. And you're right. They are being uh, one of them gets attacked by a leopard and we see them at night not having a very good sleep because they're constantly afraid of everything around them. Um, they probably could be wiped out pretty quickly because they're a small group of people. And it's only after the monolith appears and the one ape, uh, I think his name is Moon Watcher is his name in the movie, is what the, the ape is called. Um, yeah, something happens to him. And he figures out that I can use this bone as a weapon. And that's where you see the the pigs dying and you see him eating the meat. Mm-hmm. And then you see everybody else eating the meat and they become more aggressive. And they they wage war upon uh, the other, the other uh, tribe and kill one of them and chase them all off. And, of course, the... Moon Watcher is so excited he throws that bone up in the air and then we cut to you know 4 million years later depending on how you watch the movie and different interpretations and Stanley Kubrick was always one to not say this is what the meaning is although in early drafts of the film there was supposed to be a connection and a lot of voiceover work and other things that were put into the film that makes the connection between this bone as a weapon and symbolically the satellite that we see up in space is also a weapon. Yeah, it's a nuclear nuclear weapon base. A lot of that, a lot of the stuff that is left unanswered in 2001 is um, somewhat explained in 2010, the year we make contact. Uh, so if you haven't seen that, that's fine. In fact, that's probably a good thing yeah, watching watch this it. movie. But if you're looking for a lot, a lot of the answers, a lot of it's explained in 2010. And I would argue, you kind of don't want the answers. Well, and that's you know, uh, last week. A couple of weeks ago on the Major Spoilers podcast, we had Dr. Brad Will on and he was talking about Lovecraft and more importantly, this idea of the sublime mm-hmm. things that are better left unanswered and undescribed because it lessens the impact of that. And when you go and you study what the monolith is and what it's intended to be, that that does kind of lessen the mystery. And so mm-hmm. it's. The monolith is based on this principle that um, a guy by the name of John von Neumann came up with of the self-replicating robots or self-replicating things that go out into the universe. And that's how you explore the universe. And so what happens is uh, these probes are sent all throughout the universe to habitable systems. So one might park itself outside of Jupiter and it sends a probe out. And one of the first places the probes might go is not onto the planet itself but to a moon that that encircles the planet and buries itself there and maybe every so often it'll peek its head out and it will maybe send its own replicating probe down to in this case earth in which it is supposed to be there as a as an observer or a watcher until that society is ready to make contact or to evolve to a stance now in the way that it's portrayed in the book i forget what the other version of the probe is called i think it's called a bascal probe um the bascal probe actually um, influences the course of events. So in this case, it actually has an influence on the apes and changes their evolution and makes them step forward um, with, um, you know, with with the use of tools and weapons. Not unlike Matthew and not unlike the Watchers 
uh, that we see in uh, in the Marvel universe. I'm sorry, Steve. I can't <laughs> so when we when man is able to leave the planet, you know, so mm. we've planted that seed so that that evolution really kicks into gear. When man is finally onto the moon and has inhabited the moon, it tells the society that sent the probe that it's ready to make contact. And so whenever they touch the monolith on the moon, it sends the signal to Jupiter and says, please come. Essentially, it's a signal back to the people that created the the, the original uh, probes that, hey, we found people that are ready to possibly make contact with us. Um, now, the question then becomes. The monolith around Jupiter, is it a stargate? Uh, to the home world of these things or has it evolved um, our character so much that he transforms into this star child that we mm -hmm. see at the end of the movie. Mm -hmm. So the von Neumann probe, I mean, now that, you know, knowing what that is kind of deflates a whole bunch about what goes on in that movie because it really takes out the mystery of, of what's going on. Yeah. It's not very cool. You don't think so. I think it's a brilliant, a brilliant uh, um, idea about how, you know, there's no. no way that we as a group of people would ever live long enough to explore stars unless we had Stargate technology or faster than light technology. Sure. And we wouldn't be able to um, we wouldn't be able to explore the millions upon millions of different habitable worlds to find other sentient life, because a lot of time we might just go and there's a lizard there. Yeah. And no, I think that is fine. And I think that is built into this movie that this thing is there to serve a purpose to uh, propel humans forward into a different era that they couldn't have got to, or it would have taken too long for them to get. Mm -hmm. uh, what I don't think is as fun is that there's an explanation right. as to what that is or what it right. got there. And the, I, that it just, it in the is original a thing in the original script, supposedly there was supposed to be a lot of voiceover that had scientists explaining what these things were, uh -huh. you know, modern day scientists kind of doing this in newsreel fashion that was taken out of the movie. It is still in the book. Mm -hmm. Rodrigo, what were you going to say? Um, was this, so, so this is in the book, right? You, what, yeah. A lot, a lot of the, um, well in the book, in the way that it evolves in the book is that the alien culture has evolved so much that it's actually transformed themselves into these machines, which are the monoliths that then go out. Mm -hmm. But, um, the, uh, John Van Neumann, uh, probe has been around, I want to say since the 1940s or fifties, something like that. Right. Um, I'll find it exactly. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it was it was probably a good idea to omit that because I think it. Uh, I think there's basically two things that are very exciting about uh, 2001: A Space Odyssey mm -hmm. from from an audience perspective. One, trying to figure out what's going on, which right. they just explained to you. you yeah, yeah, oh yeah. And you the other one is the, and the other one is the visuals. Right? It's mm -hmm. just like, um, the. Special effects that, however many decades later, still really, really hold up, um, and just well, in most for the most part, um, and uh, just kind of like a, a visual, just progressively shrinking psychedelic tunnel that you're in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, <laughs> that, that this movie represents. Mm -hmm. No, I agree completely, and you know, um, I don't know the first time I saw two thousand one, it would have been in the mid eighties. And this is, this is probably one of the problems about watching a lot of these movies on television is when they do uh, yeah. 2001, a space odyssey and Matthew may remember this too. When they did 2001, a space odyssey, because there's these huge 
you know, the docking of the spacecraft is like so five minutes, six yeah. minutes. And then you cut to a commercial break. And then you come back from the commercial, and now they're having their small conversation. Then you go to another commercial, and now you come back from commercial, and they're doing the whole uh, Blue Danube waltz across the surface of the moon and mm. eating coffee and eating sandwiches. And then we cut to another commercial and break. And you come back from commercial, and it's just intermission. Yes. And then you cut to commercial. And, and then, then, and then the whole and, – and I remember the – you know because the last 20 minutes of the film are <laughs> yeah. the uh, descent down the um, – uh, down the uh, – the star chamber, the star tunnel, whatever it is. Yeah, sure. And that was broken up by two commercials. Uh, it's horrible. And it's, it was horrible because you can't show that whole thing 20 minutes of no commercial breaks, yeah. especially if you're a small UHF channel in Kansas City trying to do that. And so I think the first time I saw it, it was really ruined for me. But I love this idea of this device, this black thing, whatever it is, tweaking early man and setting him on this journey mm -hmm. I thought was fascinating. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until after uh, Clark published 2061 in like 1987 or something like that, that I really kind of paid attention and tried to figure out what these probes were. And I kind of remember reading a little bit about it in, in high school and a little bit in early college, but it wasn't until I started listening to conspiracy theories and being introduced to Michio Kaku, who's a, um, a, a physicist at uh, in yeah. New York city. Um, where he started talking about these advances of civilization and a stage zero civilization is where we are and a stage one and a stage two and a stage three. And he mentioned the von Neumann probes again. I was like, oh, yes, that is the thing that we see in 2001 A Space Odyssey. So it kind of all came back around that way. I don't think myself and again, maybe it's changed for you now that I've explained some of the things. Um, it only makes that movie more fascinating when you realize that. There's so much science in this fiction. Mm -hmm. Matthew, what do you think about that? There's so much well, science I, in I, this fictional tale. I will tell you a story. Okay. Uh, I came to this movie after being super familiar with two other things, which informed the way I read this movie. The first was the earlier writings of Arthur C. Clarke. There was right. a time in my, you know, early teenish, tweenish years, when I was a sucker for your Bradbury and your Clark and your Ben Bova and the like. And I had read Arthur C. Clarke's stuff, mostly short story type stuff. But when I came into this, I had also read the 10 issue run of Jack Kirby's 2001 as oh, based yeah, on yeah, yeah, comic yeah. book from yeah, Marvel, yeah. Mm -hmm. which is woo hoo hoo. Yeah, but talk about crazy. Comic, yeah, in that comic, what they did was they took the one concept that the monolith represented a point where something was about to make an evolutionary leap forward and kind of put it on an individual level. So when I saw this movie, knowing that 2001 A Space Odyssey is the place where Machine Man uh, originated in the Marvel Universe and the whole story of this, this automaton gaining sentience and, you know, with a little help and input from the black monolith, I went into this movie thinking, okay, I think I have kind of an idea of what it was, but I always watch this movie with a wonderful sense of what the hell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I really love that. I, I love the fact that, yes, there's a lot of science here, and there's those beautiful sequences where they're simulating weightlessness, and there's, there's bits and pieces. You know, for me, I, I enjoy freaking out the child by doing the HAL 9000 voice. She'll be like, and I'll be like, 
what are you doing, Dave? And it totally, totally freaks her out. She'll start screaming until I stop doing the voice. But when you sit down to watch this movie, I think your your expectations play into it. If you expect this movie to give you a linear story and say, these are these strange mysteries, and this is how we look into them, and at the end, this is what those strange mysteries were, you're going to be quite disappointed. But if you come in from the expectation of, I kind of know a little bit about Arthur C. Clarke, and I kind of know a little bit about uh, Stanley Kubrick, and I kind of know where Jack Kirby went nuts over here, you can sit and watch this film and go, holy crap, that was just utterly baffling in the most wonderful way possible. Yeah, we're looking right now at uh, one of the Jack Kirby pages, the part where he actually goes through the Stargate, and it's mm-hmm. it's just an insane mix of color and and uh, and, and light and in there. It's it's one of those things where, and I I really like the kind of the what's the word I'm looking for the the you know the progressive symbology. But more importantly, knowing and finding out today actually that Clark and Kubrick created this kind of at the same time. Yeah, they collaborated. Clark the, novelist, yeah. Clark the novelist did a pretty awesome novel, if you've read it. And Kubrick, the filmmaker, made this amazing, just colossal bazooki of a film. And then Jack Kirby, the comics genius, went off and took that and made this comic that's a, a, a transformative psycho experience. Knowing that, I wonder if it's not the source material working its way through, you know, the minds of these people, you can take that as maybe these things really do exist. <laughs> and guys like Kirby and Kubrick, they like touched a monolith and that's why they're preparing <laughs> us for the next level of awesome. And then Star Trek seven comes out soon. <laughs> you know, it's, it, it's wonderful to see what different people have come up with from that, that little weird conceit that either is or isn't in the material, depending on when you read it. You know, I would be really freaked out if, like if 2001 a space odyssey was the first draft of the story they just came up with that clark and cooper like okay this is the story we want to tell and it ended up being this movie but they worked on this movie for yeah they worked on the story for or six years yeah and they i in the middle of this film uh crazy special effect shots just practical stuff right that's just blowing my mind i said Mm -hmm. oh there has to be a Cinefix issue about this. Yes. So, uh, movie ends. I grab, I grab uh, my iPad download issue like 83 or something from 2001 uh, over this. And it is a 70-page article that I'm not even close to finishing yet detailing all that went into making this movie. And people described work on the set, uh, especially kind of like in the first year or two, they would work all day over in their set in London and they would discuss at the end of the day and they would just decide what they were going to do next to tomorrow. Like the, they would like rewrite script. They would all just be saying, Oh, okay. Now we're changing everything. And Cooper would come in with script changes and everyone is changing everything. Uh, like at one point it wasn't actually going to be apes the beginning of the film. It was actually going to be more uh, human like people where uh, they they have a picture in there with all full makeup on, uh, more human. There's, like, barely any hair on them. They've covered all genitalia. Uh, but then they decided, well, if that happens, how would these people reproduce? Because we're not showing the parts that actually allow for re- reproduction. So they have to go in and spend six months developing ape suits 
And uh, same guy who made these suits, developed the technology, and then created Chewbacca? Uh, cool. Uh, right. Trumbull. So yeah, it's crazy stuff. Uh, Trumbull, who did the uh, slit scan effect at the end of the movie, he also worked in Star Wars. Did a lot of the mm-hmm. stuff there too. So Douglas Trumbull is there uh, in that. So that's kind of cool. Um, yeah, it would be interesting if it was a first draft. But the the other interesting thing, and I, and I knew that there was a an issue devoted to this. Mm-hmm. The other thing is that they're able to find so much information about the making of the film and find these photographs because at the end of two thousand one, Kubrick ordered all the sets, all the special effects, all the props, everything destroyed. Because all the blueprints, because he didn't want people copying things that he had done. Man. And so when they did 2010 A Space Odyssey, they had to go back and recreate everything from scratch based on what they could see in the movie. And, of course, there have been some blueprints that have been uncovered, and there's only one uh, HAL 9000i that exists uh, that the author of a a 2001 uh, Space Odyssey retrospective book owns. Um, but it's it's crazy how, you know, how they went into these into the detail of this. Of course, this influences Star Wars. Oh, a, there's a great so much deal. influence through like everything. Well, I mean, just uh, I mean, from, from from effects, certainly Star Wars. The first time I saw the giant ship uh, Discovery flying through the yes. air, I was like, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. hey, look, yeah, that look, looks from the... that shot looks familiar with yeah, this yeah, giant yeah. ship. Yeah, that's pretty funny. That's the satellite of love. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, satellite of love. But um it's the the opening shot to Star Wars yeah. with the with the flyover and everything. Um, there is a I don't know. Part of me wants to say that you know Kubrick does what Kubrick does yeah. in all of his movies, um, but this one it's where he just basically has control to do whatever. And I think some people don't like this movie because it seems so slow and there's so very little dialogue mm-hmm. that happens in this movie. I bet, I bet there's less than. Than uh, 20 minutes of actual dialogue in this whole movie. And it's about two hours long. Oh, yeah. It's like two and a half. And um, you've got this. You've got like this just huge expanse of. Shots of spaceships flying over planets and uh, things in space and fixing a Mm -hmm. fixing a transmitter and, and pulling things back. And people are like, why are we even seeing this? And I think that goes back to the uh, two things. So much science in this science fiction movie and the fact that if you're Kubrick and you're developing all this stuff, like a rotating set, oh, uh, God. the centrifuge, yeah. uh, that spins and you want to do some cool stuff, then you're going to put as much of that up on the screen as you possibly can. Yeah. So, um, you know, the whole running shots inside the space station and all the cool things that are happening with the floating and, and uh, wire work and everything. It's there because we can do it and we want to show it off. But then you couple that with conversations of, Hey guys, how would you like some coffee? What sandwich shall we eat? Do you have chicken? Oh, it all tastes the same. Um, also, kind of shows in the storytelling. I mean, it really is that. It really is that dry yeah. and boring. Oh yeah. But it, it actually shows that even though you as an audience may must be super impressed with all of this that has been put up upon you and your jaws are on the floor, this is common everyday stuff to these people, and they're having common mm-hmm. everyday conversations about stuff as they explore this stuff. But it also gives the whole movie kind of a, um, to, you know, to bust out the vocabulary, kind of an elegiac tone. Right, right, right. Where even those moments that are just, you know, kind of meaningless slabs of of astronaut moments, you kind of stare. It, 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 It gets to the point where everything that happens, you're just kind of watching the pacing and watching the breakdown of it all. It's a really interesting film, very relaxing 
in a lot of ways up until the point where we all travel through the portal and explode into a giant space baby. <laughs> but there's, there's just something about watching this film that I find so quieting when it's just, you know, and then Ric Flair's music plays for a while and you're like, oh, that's, it, it's, it, it's kind of soothing. Mm-hmm. It doesn't put me to sleep necessarily, but it's just kind of, okay, I think maybe Hal has drugged me. There were, and then I start talking like Hal Nine Thousand. <laughs> um, and influences. Uh, while I was watching this, two directors came in mind. One film from um, Terrence Malick's *The Tree of Life* mm-hmm. felt very influenced by this movie, where it was. I, mean, I haven't seen it for a couple years, but uh, it's it, it's a lot of the same, like very little dialogue. Uh, I think there's more dialogue in Tree of Life than there is this, but it's just like shots of nature and there's a dinosaur sequence and a lot of just weird stuff. And you kind of just have to sit back and absorb it and just let it happen. And like, you don't have to be concerned about a plot uh, with this, which I think is a, which is a thing that, which is upsetting to people because most films that we go to watch are escapism. And we want to have a story we can follow along with and get attached to and root for people. And when a film doesn't give us that, we have to reassess what is it actually we're actually watching. And that can lead to some negative things. So, so, yeah. Without that story, some people can feel like the experience of watching a movie, specifically this movie, is, and again, these are the words that I've heard, not necessarily that I would use, pointless mm-hmm. or somehow just, you know, meaningless in that you're spending all of this time, but you're not getting the standard issue story progression that you expect from a film, especially a film two and a half hours long. Mm-hmm. Did, did you did you like this movie, Rodrigo? Uh, no, I think this is probably the most boring movie we've ever seen on Zach on film and remember we have movies like from the like 1800s on this so like I I was like watching this I was bored out of my mind like when it finally ended I was like so relieved were, were you d- disappointed in the ending no and 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 I had seen it before uh, before this time around, I just didn't remember it being this slow. And then I, I, I think the, the the thing is, is that I had watched it over multiple sittings, mm-hmm. so it didn't seem that bad. But like, um, no, I wasn't disappointed in the ending because I knew it was coming. Um, and by that point, it's like by the time the ending rolls around, like I had totally forgotten about the the apes at the beginning. Like oh, this yeah, movie yeah. is so feels immense, like it's four million or it years feels that way. <laughs> Yeah, it feels like literally a million years of evolution have happened in the meantime <laughs> since I started watching this. And by the time we all turn into a space baby, it's like, oh, well, uh, like, here's, here's a couple of things. Like, I am almost certain that at the end of the first lunar thing, when everybody gathers around the monolith and the monolith, like, screams at them, like, <laughs> yeah. I'm certain that that is, like, the, the filmmaker just being like, oh, we need to wake the audience up. <laughs> It's in, um, it's interesting that you second, say that. Go ahead. What I thought the, another thing uh, that I thought was great is uh, 
when when Dave finally makes it to the to the rendezvous point, the the monolith like comes out to meet him. Mm-hmm. Like it flies at the ship. And I was like, even the monolith got bored and we went out <laughs> to find them. It, it's interesting that you say that, that it needs that noise to wake the audience up. Um, because he does use the, the waltz music because of this, the synchronization of satellites and orbits and all these kinds of things that mm-hmm. create this little dance. But I, I believe it's, it's uh, Beethoven understood that in the style that he was forced to write music in or the popular style mm-hmm, at the time mm-hmm. that it did lull audiences to sleep. And so like when you get into, uh, I think it's the ninth uh, symphony, you start into this next movement and it starts out bump, 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 bump. Yep. And it's there to literally wake the audience up and say, Hey, stop falling asleep. So yep. that, that loud noise, which I pretty sure w- woke my children up, <laughs> Uh, did uh, did do the same thing in the, in the film in mm-hmm. that way. Interesting. Interesting. Um, I can see you're very upset about this, Rodrigo. Do you like the movie, oh, yeah. Matthew? I think Rodrigo should take a stress pill and think things over. <laughs> Maybe. Um, this is one of those films that I I like, but I don't love this is there are films that i look at i think that's my movie that's my movie sure 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 you know when i when i when the black hole comes on i'm gonna sit down i'm gonna watch the black hole every time it comes on so twice in the last 15 years Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but this film is one of those films where first of all two and a half hours of doing anything that does not involve you know sugar or alcohol (laughs) or lovely ladies for me is problematic but more importantly this is a film that I've seen at least eight or nine times. Um, at one point, I had to watch this film as a master control operator and run commercials during it. And it's a film that each successive airing has been about as successful where I'm into it, but I kind of feel Rodrigo's frustration. And I find myself really enjoying the third segment and the first segment is kind of okay. And of course it's relatively short and there are bits and pieces of it that I'm just like, I would never have done that. I would, if I were a movie maker, I would never have done that. But if you take it of a piece, it's a better film watching experience than I ever remember. If that makes sense. Cause the last time I saw this was probably around the year 2000. And I remember being kind of, you know, uh, droney in the middle and then picking up and then droney in the middle. When I watched it this time, God help me, um, it, it, it went faster and it did, you know, it, it kept me enthralled all the way through. It wasn't like I was ever bored or, or completely angry. But yeah, I did have problems with just kind of the glacial pacing and then the and then, but after a while, it just kind of started feeling like an orchestral piece where yeah, yeah, yeah. they'd go dun 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 and then which is always fascinating for me. So it's one of those films that is structurally fascinating and the experience of watching it is fun. I do like bits and pieces of it. I, I can't say I don't like this movie, but if you were to say to me, Do I like it? the answer is probably. <laughs> you know, I wonder uh, I, I, I I love talking like Hal nine thousand. That's what I like. I wonder if if Kubrick hadn't been married to the to the Blue Danube waltz 
and he was able mm-hmm, to use mm-hmm. something else or just use um, um, theremin sounds the entire time. <laughs> if the movie would have been shorter, because if you edit it out and you edit out all the really long shots of spaceships floating across the surface of the moon, which honestly is 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. If you mm-hmm. edit down that docking sequence, if you edit down some of the um, uh, some of the stuff that's going on inside uh, the Jupiter one mission, uh, uh, I forget what the name of the ship is, uh, but you edit Discovery. some of that stuff down discovery one. Mm-hmm. I think it'd be about an hour, hour and 15 minute movie. And I think it might be a lot more interesting. I mean, you could still keep the whole but 20 think- minutes of the end of, of, uh, you know, evolution and advancement that goes on down the, down the star tunnel or whatever it is. Yeah. And I think it would be much more interesting and people would be like, wow, this is really a fascinating film. But I, I kind of agree with you that it does seem to become very tedious and boring. I think it would be less memorable. Probably. Oh, yeah. A, a, a shorter, a, a differently edited film. Because I think Kubrick being Kubrick and getting to Kubrick all over everything, like the biggest Kubrick that ever did Kubrick, makes this movie part of the experience that it is. And I think that without those long shots and without, you know, the orchestral pieces and without the points where it's just like a man running in a circle for an hour and a half and doing these huge, you know, beautiful visual set pieces, I think it would kind of, it would, it would fall into the, the same realm as like, gosh, I shouldn't say this, but as like a Zardoz, a film that has a lot of really interesting concepts in it and a lot of things that, you know, you kind of throw at the wall, but the way this movie comes together, you know, I don't necessarily want to sit down and spend two and a half hours watching a science fiction movie, but if any After. movie were going to make me do it, this is the one I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily want to see star Wars edited. Right. In this yeah, well, true. and I think the other thing that's fascinating yeah. about this from, from the music standpoint is yes, we have seen classical music paired with other things before that are not associated with classical music. Like the, uh, the Merry Melodies, the the classic uh, Warner Brothers cartoons uh, with Daffy Duck. Mm-hmm. This is really unique because you're taking something that's totally sci-fi. Like I said, theremin is <laughs> what we would associate with sci-fi. But here we're pairing it with classical music, and it just becomes this beautiful dance yeah. up on the screen. So it's almost like you have to leave uh, also Sprock Zarathustra in there and, and leave that yeah. whole thing in yeah. there. And you have to leave all of the Blue Danube, and you have to mm-hmm. leave everything in there. Mm-hmm. And that's what helps stretch this out really well, long because Kubrick Kubrick had a guy making a score for this movie. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it would have been like, I think it, they said described it as like a traditional score with pacing and ups and downs and crap, but he mm-hmm. just threw all this classical music in when he was editing just as temp music and just liked it so much yeah, and yeah. just kept it in. So there, I mean, there is like a score mm-hmm. so that that would be an interesting edit. Just take all of the score music, the original, take, yeah, yeah, they have, and then throw it over top of the orchestra stuff. And then, did, Either re-edit or just leave it at that and see what happens. Did you like this film, Zach, or not? Uh, yeah, I really like this a lot. Did you really? Yeah, I really like this come? movie a lot. Uh, because I was completely captivated. Um, I was like, how in the hell did they shoot that? <laughs> like That, oh, was, yeah, that yeah. was my thought through like the middle part of this movie is like, how... Like I don't understand like how the, the these angles and the the the, the twisting and the stuff. Uh, so that was just fascinating to me. Um, and every once in a while, I'm in a right mood, and I kind of like a 
movie that just draws things out without talking. Mm -hmm. I think drawing Mm -hmm. things out with talking is really boring, but if you can uh, show me pretty stuff and draw it out, or I don't even even say draw it out, but just um, tell a story through the visuals for a long time, I'm kind of down with that. Uh, I mean, that's not something you want every time you watch a movie. Right. But, uh, yeah, I was completely captivated with this, and... Almost just immediately watched it again, right? You really? Yeah, Excellent. I thought about it. <laughs> interesting, interesting. Yeah. Uh, let's give a shout out to our associate producers for this week on Zach on Film. They are Alexander Atia, Zachariah McAllister, William Place, Matthew Bach, Ian Linnington, Crystal Groves, Aaron Stafford, Nicholas Starinsky, DDP McCarthy, Christopher Chrissy. Stephen Howland, Lori McClory, EA, Theo Poslett, Brant Williams, and Greg Soto. Thank you, each and one, for all of your contributions to Major Spoilers, for helping us keeping going every week. Words. Hey, speaking of more words, Zach. Yeah, What kind of things did you read in your Cinefix uh, article about some of the behind the scenes, beyond the, the, you know, the the makeup with the apes and all that stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one of the things, well, first off, uh, uh, how much, uh, like the graphics on the screens and stuff, mm-hmm. I was like, well, what that was all rear projection. They had just yeah, yeah. a buttload of rear projection things hooked onto all their sets to uh, do all of the computer screens and all of Hall's computations. And mm-hmm. it was pretty cool, though, wasn't it? Yeah, no, it was it, amazing. You know, it's it's funny when you look at this and Clark. Um, is it Clark that's credited with coming up with the concept of the satellite? I forget, I uh, forget who, um, uh, of the traditional telecom communication satellite. But it's funny that when we're watching this, there appears to be a lot of technology that has come to pass. For example, the, the lawsuit that uh, Samsung and Apple had with one another over the iPad and the tablet design, uh, Samsung came in and said, well, Apple, Apple doesn't have any right to the iPad yeah. design because in 2001, there are these iPads sitting right on the on the tables that these guys are watching their content on and that's where Apple got their idea was from watching 2001 a Space Odyssey and then as you watch the big the square you know like comm systems all that that stuff flap, flap on, on the screen I couldn't help but think of the new uh, Windows 8 interface you know that that startup mm-hmm. screen where it's about a oh, bunch of yeah. these square tiles that can change and do yeah. different things. And it's like, yeah, I know you go, yeah. but you look at 2001, a space odyssey and you see those appear on those screens, those standalone screens. And you're like, huh, mm-hmm. how about that? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, mm-hmm. the thing that I made the, um, uh, comment that I made a long time ago about how, if you look at the size and the shape of an iPhone, how it's very monolith in shape. Yeah. And when the monolith appears, it's this jump in evolution because it's got all this information that it's feeding out to people. Well, the iPhone contains mm-hmm. all the information in the world that can change the way you think and do things and, 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 and weird that stuff like that. That is not true. It, it's not? Uh, but I, I will say, I will say though, I was, I was watching this uh, with my phone sitting next to me and the, I, like, I, I literally held it up to the screen. My phone has the exact same dimensions yeah. as the monolith. <laughs> yeah, I exactly. Mean, it totally, it's, and it's an Android, so it's like pitch black. If I turn it around and just put it on the screen... It looks yeah. like that. I mean, it is. It is like it, it's crazy how much uh, 2001: A Space Odyssey has impacted 
uh, design. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at Android, Android phones are a combination of the monolith and how. So yes. great, nice going. Like yeah. way to way to pick the most frightening parts of the movie and make your product around it. <laughs> also, good job because it totally works. Do you have that big red eye when you boot up your phone? Yep. Yeah, all, I, I, all oh. the Android stuff does. Well, I think even that, the razors when they, when yeah. they were first coming out. The other crazy thing is that a lot of the furniture though that's in the space stations and everything. Well, it's actually 1950s I designs. Know, but it looked like used oh, in 1960s movies. They went to IKEA and bought all their furniture. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. So let's talk about Hal. Let's uh, close out uh, this episode by talking about Hal 9000. Uh, some people I I think know that the uh, letters H A L came from just shifting the alphabet one letter over from IBM, oh. and that's where they come up with the Hal 9000. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I'm looking, I'm pretty sure it's true. Look it up because shift your letters one letter over and it's IBM. Well, it may be unintentional, but it's interesting that you can shift all the letters over one. Mm, Interesting. Yeah. Um, So what do you think of, of how as an AI? I mean, certainly we, at one point I I tested this today. It appears to have been taken out of the latest uh, iOS, but it used Uh to be that you could go and ask Siri, open the pod bay doors. Can't you just slide it under the door? Oh, oh. that's what she said. Um, but it used to be she would used to say, I'm sorry, I can't do that right now. Oh. As a reference to yeah, sure. 2001 A Space Odyssey. But apparently they've taken that out. Lame. I know. It is lame when you have those. Uh, you can, I think you can also ask Siri to marry you. Siri, will you marry me? <laughs> but it's this, you know, this, and I think Siri's come a long way, and I think uh, the, uh, uh, what is it called? Uh, Cortana. Car- Cortana yeah. on the Android devices have, has come so far that we are approaching a good repl- replication, a representation there. of the artificial intelligence that seems to respond to our questions and answers and interact with us. And depending yeah. on how often you use Siri... Uh, and I don't know if you use it on your iPhone or if you guys use Cortana um, on, on any of your devices, but it's odd how you can almost carry out this conversation mm-hmm. with this device that isn't a true thinking device. And yet Hal is a true thinking, reasoning, perfect being. Mm-hmm. Something mm-hmm. that is fascinating about this movie for me as the dialogue person who goes, I love that chunk of dialogue Listen to the interactions between Dave and Hal. Right. And tell me which one sounds like the robot. Right. Because and, Hal and, talks in that wonderful mm-hmm. conversational voice, Dave. And then Dave is like, I don't know what you're talking about. You and Frank were planning to disconnect me, Dave. Right. That That's weird. No, and it's, I, it, it's it, an it amazingly may be, cool inversion. It may be intentional because uh, – uh, you know, we talk about the 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 banality of the speech that everyone has, how it's just very dry and it's just very boring. Um, Haywood Floyd is very straightforward and very boring and has very little emotion in anything that he talks about. All the conversations are very robotic in nature. We're just going about our daily business, daily routine, daily conversation that you would have. You know, if there was weather on the moon, instead of asking what sandwich people would be uh, eating, they would be talking about, oh, sure is strange weather that we're having on the moon this week, don't it's you think? Like, it's almost like Wes Anderson was completely influenced by Stanley Kubrick. Maybe. But he, you're right, Matthew. When you do meet Hal, he has a heck of a lot more personality than Dave does, or that Frank does, or that and, 
he's got a heck of a lot more. He, you warm up to him a lot quicker than those corpses in the refrigerator. Yeah, and when he when he croaks, his uh, How? his death yeah. scene is a flat yeah a flat out Shakespearean death scene. It's a lobotomization. It, I mean, it's hard. Yeah. Yes, but it, it's heartbreaking when you hear him. My mind is going. I can feel it, Dave. You feel for this murderous red-eyed computer, but you you have that moment where he's 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 coming to pieces and he knows his life is ending. And it really is kind of a, you know, it's a sad. meaningful mm-hmm. moment. Yeah, it's sad. I mean, do you did you feel sad when Hal was being turned off or did you like, yeah, man, woohoo? No. Uh no, it was it was sad. It also scared me cuz it reminded me of the ending of Portal. Oh, okay. He yeah. taught me to sing a song. Her is now uh, out on the Portal, iTunes. Uh, uh, yes, if you Portal, like oh yeah, Portal hugely influenced by 2001. I mean, yeah. If you look at if you look at not just the um, characters in Portal, but also a lot of the design of Portal is is hugely influenced by 2001. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a lot, mm-hmm. a lot of our major fictions. Oh, are, I mean, you can, yeah, I mean, like, not oh, just major right. fictions. So, I mean, major everything is influenced everything. by this movie. I mean, The Simpsons have riffed oh, yeah. on 2001: A Space Odyssey a million and a half times, and I see people that I know have never seen 2001: <laughs> A Space Odyssey. Zach sit there, and go, ha, 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 Homer in space getting hit on the head by the Fox satellite, and have no idea that oh. that's a reference to 2001: A Space Odyssey. Yeah. And uh, yet, it's become so ingrained in our culture that I don't think you can escape what this movie has done well, to culture. Mm-hmm. And I don't think you can escape what it's done to, to, um, to, to movie making. I mean, a, a huge, I think, I think the biggest, um, indicator of that is that also Sprax Zarathustra is a huge piece. I mean, right. it's a piece that right. is incredible, but it is completely tied to 2001, a space mm-hmm. odyssey. Right. If I mean, you hear also Sprax Zarathustra on TV or anything else, it's probably making a reference to 2001, a space odyssey. Or yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or Ric Flair. <laughs> so I wonder, Although Ric Flair is in fact making a reference to 2001 <laughs> when he uses this music. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, that's a good point. I wonder Zach, mm-hmm. Is how, what do you think of Hal and his actions on the discovery? Uh, I think that I don't know. Um, I mean, is it so? What, what causes Hal to do that? What causes Hal to murder? Well, he thinks the humans are going to screw it up. Problem, he thinks they're going to screw the crap up, and then but they he, figure it out, and then he, he wants has to kill two them. Bits of- yeah, that's that's the biggest problem. And I does it come out completely and clearly in the movie that Hal was given two different sets of orders? It's it's referenced because every time referenced. every time I, every time Dave or Frank start to mention the mission and they want to talk about the mission and at one point um they're confronting Hal directly and they're saying Hal you know, we've been hearing these rumors and why were the scientists put to sleep mm-hmm. before they were put on here? Do you know something that we're not to, uh, what, that you're not telling us? Oh, I'm sorry. There's a, com- a failure with the telecommunication satellite. You should go che- check that out. He's changing the subject. Picked up a- yeah, he's he's changing the subject but- intentionally. And I think in a sense, and again, this is spelled out in 2010, if you've seen this. <laughs> Hal essentially becomes schizophrenic because he's given two different sets of orders mm-hmm. and he's expected to carry them both out and he can't. And the only solution is to m- remove the middleman. The one set of orders is think, 
deliver these people to deliver these people safely to uh, Jupiter, but don't tell them what the mission is. And the second part is make contact with the monolith at all cost in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. And so he's got these two conflicting orders of what am I supposed to do? And I'm going to kill you all. But that's the thing. He kills them. So he doesn't have to lie. Right. Because he has a, he, his mission is to be infallible, to be correct, to give the information. And, you know, he's put in a situation where he can either break his prime directive or he can find a way around it. And, you know, he's, he's clearly not, you know, an Android with the Asimov's law. I think it's mm-hmm. Asimov who has the three yeah, laws. Asimov's yeah, Asimov's three laws, which they said really but, wouldn't work you know, anyway. It's actually, when we say he's, you know, the most animated and the most human speaking character, he also has that moment where he has the very human break from reality when he's when he's faced with something that he can't quite comprehend or that he can't put together. He has that schizophrenic break and just kind of thinks, all right, I'll kill them and everything will be fine, Zach. Yes, yes. (laughs) He taught me a song, Zach. It's called baby got back would you like to hear it <laughs> please no i like i really think zach i mean 2010 kind of removes all the the mystery from 2001 yeah um but i think it's have also read, a very have you read 3001 i've not read 3001 i didn't know there was a 3001 i ended with 2061 where floyd is now like 100 years old and they take him to Europa to find out, you know, why is there suddenly these life forces and his interaction with the new life on Europa. And it's it's pretty cool. Um, but you thousand one is relatively recent. Yeah, I think it was like ninety eight or something like that. Yeah, three thousand one. Actually, I think. Well, I don't want to spoil it for people, but it I'm probably Hal not going to read it. Very, OK, Hal and Dave are merged into one being. And they sort of show up in sort of a woo-woo. I think they, that's kind of touched on in, in 2061, though. I'm pretty sure that – and again, it's been years since I read that book, almost well, 30 they, years. Well, they show up, and they're they're in the monolith. In, they actually, I believe, become a character. It's that's weird. That's really And weird. again, that, that book is like 15 years old, so yeah. I, can, I can sort of spoil it. Yeah. No, no, that's fine. I, I, yeah, you you might – it's, it's a totally different director in, in yeah. 2010. But you might want to watch it and just see what happens. Haywood mm-hmm. Floyd comes back, obviously, yeah. played by Roy Scheider. Um, and um, it's <laughs> We're more of, need a bigger space. Boat. Yeah, basically. And it's got John Lithgow in it and a couple of other people. I think it's got uh, Dr. Pulaski in it, if I remember correctly, from Star Trek. Maybe not her. Wow. Let me see. 2010. Here we make contact. Let's go over to the IMDb. I thought she was the female lead in that. Oh no, that's Helen Mirren. Uh, Sorry, totally Helen different Mirren person. Is much better. Yeah, I yeah. love Helen. Totally Mirren. different person. <laughs> um, but again, it's also been <laughs> about twenty Mirren years since like I've seen that five movie. Five times better than Rosalind Shay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jeez. So uh, I'm offended. Now. What? I don't know. Maybe I'll maybe body. I'll check it out. What did you? What did you learn from this? What do you want to take forward with this? Um, I learned that practical effects are the coolest forever, forever and ever. Um, that, I mean, those shots were 
just amazing. And I think you have to learn that if you're going to make a really long movie with very little dialogue, you're going to learn how to do the coolest stuff with the camera possible. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and you're going to pull out tricks out of the bag and get some really great people on your team to work with you and just try to make something that looks super pretty. And, um, and so, I mean, I, I, I really do like these kind of movies that, um, just kind of allow you to sit and, uh, assess how a piece of art made you feel and just, uh, cause I don't think out of like all the art forms, uh, movies don't always do give that to you all the time. It's kind of a lot of yeah. uh, narrative, and it just g- gives you all the feelings mm-hmm. that you're supposed to have. Uh, very rarely, I think, do films just kind of happen and let you just digest it, kind of like a painting or you know, or something like that. Uh, that you just have to kind of just see how it, uh, what emotions it elicits in you, and just being okay with that. I mean, if this film makes you hate it. Just kind of understand why you don't like it and just let that happen. Um, so that was cool. I, I think just kind of thinking the mindset that music that you might not normally think of may have a bigger impact in your piece too. Yeah. Yeah, that was certainly – and when I was, when I was playing, it was uh, – I was thinking, well, why did he use this? Because I hadn't known anything yet. Was it? Mm-hmm. But um, I mean, so these are works that people would have been fairly familiar with when the movie came out. And – I think, and well, if you're going to do something as crazy as like these moon landings, which we hadn't, we'd kind of gotten into space. We hadn't been to the moon yet or anything. Uh, so it's completely new concepts really to the public. Uh, why not give something that they might be a little familiar with to kind of, uh, ease the digestion of the crazy they're seeing on screen. That was just a thought I had, uh, while watching it, that maybe that would be easier to, um, give a new idea of what's kind of dabble in something someone's already familiar with. Excellent. Cool. Good analysis this week, Zach. I hope, I'm glad you enjoyed the film. Thank you. And uh, hopefully you'll explore more of some of the craziness that Stanley Kubrick has done. Probably will. We do not have um, The Shining on the list. I actually have. I haven't watched it yet. I downloaded it a long time ago and it was really cheap on iTunes, but I haven't, this is the only Kubrick movie I've seen. Uh, have you not watched Eyes Wide Shut? Mm-mm. That might be an interesting one for you to watch as well. Okay. Probably no. wait for a few years after you've been married before you watch it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, don't don't watch. Too it. I, know, sexy. I know. I know. I was like, I was reading stuff about Kubrick one time. Like, uh, they had like uh, a museum, a traveling museum they had in L.A., and they were talking about lenses he used, and he mm-hmm. had a lens from that NASA used to yeah, use yeah. on one of his. He built a rig to use, and it's like the smallest depth of field anyone's like ever used in a movie before. There is a great conspiracy theory movie that um, that they put together. And I think they had Kubrick's room blessing on this. No, 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 not Room 237. That's about uh, The Shining. The Shining. The um, oh, right, right. But um, there's one about this conspiracy theory that Kubrick helped do the moon landing. fake the moon landing. I've heard that. And they've got all these interviews and different people that come on, and it's, it's totally faked. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty sure it's got Kubrick's blessing, and he may have even participated in it. Um, but it's, it's just totally blows people's mind. It's like, yeah, Kubrick did all that stuff in 2001. Of course he would have been able to fake the moon landing and here's proof. And look, he worked with NASA in, to design this lens. In, in room 237, one, cause they just, basically it's just like 20 people 
giving their read on The Shining and what The Shining's about, right? Right. One of them is saying, one of the guys at the interview is probably one of the guys from that movie. Um, and he basically says that The Shining is Kubrick tipping his hand. It's, it's like his victory lap after having, um, <laughs> uh, after having uh, faked the moon landing, and the the and and the the weird thing, like the great thing about this, is kind of like the way that uh, Dark Side of the Moon and um, the Wizard of Oz zinc up is like what this guy's thesis is that there are like Kubrick follows The Shining, um, the book The Shining, um, very closely, except in certain parts. And if you look at every part that the movie deviates from the book, that is like a clue. So you analyze that scene and it'll show you like it's like oh, all those little squares, like those little hexagons. That's like the exact same pattern as like Cape Canaveral. <laughs> well, or it's the exact same pattern of the inside of the uh, of the Discovery ship. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. it like it's great because a lot of the things clearly Kubrick probably didn't have a lot of control over because right. he went to this hotel to do it. Right, mm-hmm. right. But it's like it is fascinating. I, I love that. I really love how somebody can take that read and just piece all these things together. And on the one hand, it makes no sense. And on the other, if you just let yourself like step out of your own brain for a second, (laughs) it makes total sense. Mm -hmm. And it's really brilliant in how somebody can piece something like this together. Yeah. Good time, Zach. So explore some more about Stanley Cooper. I think you will uh, enjoy it immensely. I'm going to. Um, uh, yeah. So that's, no, it was a good, it was a good movie. Hopefully you guys will enjoy it. Also, uh, that's going to finish this episode of Zach on Film for this week. Make sure you head over to MajorSpoilers.com where you can give all your thoughts on 2001 A Space Odyssey and the podcast posting page. While you're at MajorSpoilers.com, click on that Amazon.com link where you can go buy your very own copy of this or maybe a uh, new Android phone if they sell those on Amazon. I'm sure they do. A Blu-ray player, a new TV. None of it will cost you any extra, but a little bit will come back to Major Spoilers to keep us going week after week. So next week, we will talk George Lucas's American Graffiti on Zach on Film. Another thing about that one, Zach, mm-hmm. music also plays an important role I've heard in that, that. movie. I've just heard like that. this one. Interesting. Have cool. we done American Graffiti? No. No. We wouldn't do it again. Silly. We've talked about it before. What What did we do? Uh, uh, we did uh, Die Hard. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 